Welcome to Tech Kitchen Talks, episode 23. In this episode, Dave from Silicon Valley and myself, Glyn from London, discuss are we moving towards a passwordless future? What information should you share on social media? And other items that have caught our attention this week. If you would like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi again, Dave. Hey, Glenn. Great to see you. Great to see you too. So this week, trying to avoid anything to do with AI, just because the news is just completely full of it. But we have just had Google I.O. happen recently. Uh, one of the big things they raised up was uh, Google passkeys. So Google accounts now support replacing traditional passwords and other signing systems like two-factor or SMS verification with a local PIN or a device's own biometric authentication. I've got a lot of reservations about this, but it'd be great to hear what you think, whether this is a technology that we should be heading towards, especially the fact that a company like Google is getting so heavily behind it at the moment. Well, this issue is really on my mind right now because, as I just shared with you, I might have been hacked just in the last 12 hours and um, you know, someone trying to steal a payment of mine. So it happens. These are real issues that we need to pay attention to. When it comes to the passkey thing, I think that you might know more about the, the deep tech of this one than I do. But my understanding is basically like this. A private public key scenario is a very good way uh, to ensure security. There's lots of different ways to implement that. But generally speaking, if I'm holding a private key and you have my public key, that works pretty well. We've seen a lot of success with that and very difficult to hack around. The problem has always been private keys are difficult to manage. We saw that with crypto, when everybody was going wallet crazy and losing their keys and things like that. So I think what all that's happening now is that we're implementing you know, a key challenge for authentication, but the actual key is generated and managed for you. You don't have to look at the key. Uh, you don't have to memorize the key. You don't have to write it down or anything like that. It's hidden in this kind of secret secure enclave on your phone or device, and then you use biometrics to access that and have it sent out to be hashed out in the cloud. So if that is the correct understanding, and I still have some questions about it that I want to ask you, I guess it's a good thing. It's better than passwords. Phones can also be stolen and hacked and broken into and all the same things, but it's harder. Phones are usually with us, and we might see better compliance. So with that, that with this level of knowledge, I'm going to say this is nothing really new. It's not going to change everything, but it's probably a good thing. That's my <laughs> that's my verdict. Good thing. What do you think? I disagree. I mean, it's not the technology <laughs> I don't actually like. So, you know, these pass keys are generated and they only exist on your device. So they're not shared with Google. And yes, biometric data is used to essentially decrypt it and allow you to use it. And that biometric data isn't shared with the third party either. So with Apple iOS devices, uh, they have a security enclave where the biometric data sits. But it's the fact that we're moving from something that you know to something that you have. 
And that concerns me. Essentially, you know, I don't like using biometric data. I don't have face ID as my identifier on any of my devices because I can't change my face. Or if I was going to change my face, it'd be very painful and very expensive, Dave. Where if I was at least changing a password, I can do that in one minute and that's not going to be an issue for me. So I don't consider it a more secure. Technically, it looks like a more secure, secure solution, but I see it as less of a less of a more secure solution because of the fact that you are fixed with your face or your fingerprint and you cannot change that. And if any time there's an issue with an Apple device where this biometric data is now publicly on the dark web or something like that, there's no way that you can change that. That data is out there, it's fixed, and you're going to have to stop using it anyway because it's not going to be a valid format. So... Yeah, you know, the old two-factor authentication was it's something that you know and something that you have. So something that you know is your password, something that you have is your second-factor authentication. We've sort of got rid of the second factor and just assuming the technology is going to handle this problem for you. So, yeah, essentially, I maybe I'm too set in my ways. I don't like change, but I just don't feel it is a more secure solution when you've got humans involved that are going to lose their phone, you know, and... You know, like I say, if you get arrested, they can just put the phone up towards your face and then, you know, they've unlocked your phone for you. That sounds horrific for me. If you want my password, you're going to have to torture me for it. You know, it makes me feel like a bit more of a man by saying that. But at least it's uh, something that I know that I've given out rather than something they could do when I'm, you know, fast asleep and then they unlock my phone with my face. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I was once sleeping and uh, my wife opened up my phone because she needed something out of my phone. And I felt her grab my finger and use it to open the, th- the fingerprint thing, which I didn't really mind, but it, was, it really showed you how weak that can be. So I think what you're saying is it all makes sense, except that if your face is your uh, means of authentication, it's perfect because it's your unique face and it's attached to you and only you have one until there's a breach, in which case it's kind of a disaster because now where are you going to go, right? It's you only have one face. So it's an interesting uh, discussion. It reminds me of uh, something that a friend of mine says every time these things come up, which is, oh, quantum is going to come along and just ruin all of this anyways. You know, we talk about crypto and blockchain and all this complicated hashing, uh, private, public, but a uh, quantum computer could theoretically just bust right through that and not so far in the future. So that could ruin everything. But I don't know. I mean, we have to talk about this in terms of balancing actual security real security, and effective practical security. So I'm pretty tight with my passwords, or at least I thought so until this morning. I try hard not to share passwords between different applications and, and all that. So use a password manager. But a lot of people are still doing, you know, hello, one, two, three, and my dog's birthday and things like that. So I think this will probably uh, increase compliance in a big way. Once people realize that it's easy, and it works, and they learn to trust it, which I suspect they will, we might get into a situation where most people are using it, it works pretty well. Google made an interesting comment in one of their recent uh, press releases saying that this will allow them to uh, put more scrutiny on exceptions and suspicious logins. And that was really interesting, because I think that's probably true. I think uh, you're not going to lose your two-factor or anything else. So if you can't get in with your face or your thumbprint, then you go the ordinary way. But if you're even slightly suspicious, anything weird happens, hopefully Google will take action uh, and they'll be a little bit more interested and able to try to figure out what's going on. Although 
I think it was just two weeks ago we agreed that uh, some of these big companies have been hacked so many times and the public is used to it that they don't care as much as we think <laughs> about being hacked. So I think it's a very difficult balance between what is really good and perfect and actual security and just whatever we can pull off, right? Real world security. I still think it's a good thing. I, I don't, I've definitely heard a few court cases in America where isn't there a right to not uh, testify against yourself by giving up your password? You're doing that. You're incriminating yourself by giving up your password, where giving up your biometrics, you're not. So therefore, there's a clear separation there. If I'm going through passport security at an airport, you've got the big issue of, you know, I think I've heard this in the US where you've got to give your phone, they plug it into something. And what, they're probably just collecting everything they've got on the whole device, completely cloning it. You know, that's a huge concern. So therefore, if you always need that biometric device, which will be your phone, there's no way for you to log into your systems when you have changed country. Say if I was going to North Korea for whatever reason, I wouldn't take my iPhone with me. I wouldn't take my real laptop. I'll take the, you know, the cheapest Windows or Chromebook possible, but I'd still want to log in on the other side just because that's something that I know that I can log in with. So, I mean, look, again, this isn't taking over the world. It's, you know, the pass keys are only going to be supported by who chooses to support them. So right now Google's got that hurdle where systems have to decide whether they want to support the Google Passkey solution or not for their own products. But yeah, I, I don't see the incentive personally. I don't th- I don't feel like it's more secure. I mean, if it was something like, you know, a, a little website or blog posts and something like that, yeah, fine. I don't care about that. But when it's something serious, I like more hoops to jump through. So if it's hard for me, it's harder for someone else to actually get into the account. Yeah. Well, you do make a good point. When I go through the airport now, very often there's facial recognition and the little door just opens at the gate. And I'm always wondering, where, how do they ID my face? Where do they get uh, the definitive source of whose face that belongs to? But they have it. So the way the technology is set up, they tell you that we look at your face, we analyze it, but we don't store anything. We just authenticate. But it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to take a very clear uh, image of someone's face, analyze it for authenticity, and then have enough data to be able to reproduce it. I don't know. Or hackers to access the system and then just start reading the raw data before it gets hashed or saved or, you know, obfuscated in some way. Yeah, so um, I think you make a good point. But in terms of adoption, I don't think it's going to be very hard because people are, are kind of lazy about this stuff. And all these companies that, I mean, we, we recently agreed that the companies aren't investing so much into security because they know that even if they get hacked, it'll probably be okay. However, it's not good for their brand. They don't want that. It's, a, it's you know, it's a, still a bad thing. So I think that it's easier for them. Not only uh, is it probably more secure in many ways, but it's easier for the clients. Um, you know, it's easier for people that aren't really solid users who have sloppy passwords. And it's probably easier for the company because they're kind of sending it out to a third party. It's sort of like one big SSO party now. So they're actually losing some responsibility, which is very nice, right? If I'm kayak.com, who's one of the companies that's signing up, I may not even have to handle any authentication. I'm not even storing your hash password now. I'm not even handling your, your SSO. I'm just waiting to find out, yes or no, can you come in? So that's a nice thing. I saw DocuSign, Kayak, eBay, PayPal, Shopify, 
and Zoho were the, the, the recognizable names on the list uh, that I saw. That's a pretty good start. I think a lot of people will just start saying, yeah, sure, go for the passkey. Because look at facial recognition, how quickly it caught on. People love it, for better or worse. So I'm not too worried about it. I think it's going to be everywhere. But let me ask you this. Technically, there was a comment uh, about how if you switch devices from uh, my iPhone to my new iPhone, then iCloud was going to help me to transfer my passkey. And doesn't that violate the whole idea of the passkey staying on the device? I don't know how the architecture works, so I'm going to rely on you here. But I started to think maybe what's happening is that the passkeys are throwaway, which would probably be a good idea. If I switch to a new phone, it's actually a new passkey that gets generated on the new phone. It has nothing to do with the old one. And now the system knows that I own it and the old one is burned up. But if that passkey is being passed through iCloud or Samsung or Knox or, you know, one of the other ones, then uh, I like this less. So what's the deal with that? Do you know how that works? I haven't looked into it, but you've got to support that functionality. People keep their phones for, what, two or three years as a maximum normally? So, well, at least as an average. So therefore, you need to be able to move this across. Check, generate a new passkey means there needs to be some form of master passkey somewhere, which would have to be stored you know, in the cloud just to validate that the new passkey is a valid passkey, then update that, that information everywhere else. So I don't see a way around it apart from passing at least some form of secret from one device to another when you do set up a new device. You know, that process gave all the encryption in the world going from device one to device two, but how much, how diff, you know, there's already been multiple cases of people cloning mobile devices already, which means technically that information is there. But I assume it's just some form of hash, which is only decrypted from the biometrics that they're passed. But I don't think you do need a master secret. If if you're going to generate new ones, you have to. But otherwise, you're generating the passkeys purely on your biometrics rather than having some other secret before utilizing your biometrics to generate the pass. Only if you wanted it to work on the same public key. What I thought they would be doing, it's a little bit like if I'm signing into Netflix and I don't feel like putting my, my password on my remote control, it asks me to go to a device that I'm already logged into and, you know, do you recognize this number? Something like that. So if I have two iPhones and I have them both in front of me and this one says, yes, I want to share my key to the next one. And the other one says, yes, uh, you're the same person. You've logged into Apple in the same way. We, we believe you. Then it just sends over iCloud uh, a nice note saying, OK, this is no longer his phone. Move to this one. And it burns the other one up and makes a whole new key pair on the new one. Only if you haven't lost your old device, Dave. If you haven't lost your old device, Dave. Yeah, that's okay. Well, never mind then. <laughs> uh, but setting up a new public key is not a big deal, right? I mean, it's just a key pair. So, I mean, they can't be trading secrets around on iCloud. How, isn't that a total violation of the entire concept of keeping uh, these keys safe? This is why I just don't like it, Dave. This is why I like to know that I'm the only one with access to my password list. You know, password managers have existed for a long time now. Yes, my Netflix password sucks, but that's only because I have to keep on typing it in with a remote control. So therefore, that is deliberately basic and easy. And if someone hacks my Netflix, I'm just going to get to see what they're interested in watching. But anything related to anything important has 30 plus characters and every different variation you could possibly think of because there's no need for me to remember it. So from, yeah, I mean, 
the technology, they would have solved this problem in some way, but that, yeah, the, these secrets do need to be shared. And if they're encrypted at rest in the cloud and therefore it's one way, you know, it's, it's you know, trust no one encryption is that Apple or Google can't decrypt what the raw version is without the original keys or biometric data then that's their consideration of secure because you know no um no technical request can ever allow them to decrypt it so you know that doesn't really bother me being able to pass it because i'd expect that to happen because people are stupid me included where we lose our phones we lose access i've lost the password to my dogecoin wallet actually i've mined dogecoin back in the early days i forgot the passcode to it but i managed to brute force it Luckily, what I did was dump out all of my old passwords that I could remember, everything on my password managers, brute forced all of them. And luckily, one of them was actually the passcode for my uh, wallet. Oh, wow. So, you know, I was, I don't know, so it worked very well. It was only like 24 quid or something I managed to get out of Dogecoin, but uh, it's not bad. That's usually not um, how that story ends. No, exactly. If it ended very successfully, Dave, we probably wouldn't be talking right now and I'd be sitting on a beach. Wasn't there a guy over um, uh, in the UK somewhere? that had $180 million of Bitcoin on a USB and was going through the, the city dump with a bulldozer. Yeah, you hear these stories all the time. People, you know, wipe their disks or they've lost or they threw away a hard drive. And it's just like, they're probably just trying to get some publicity. You know, it probably means nothing. And there's so many people that have lost money in the crypto world. It'd be interesting to know what, what the calculated percentage of lost is. Technically, even with Bitcoin, the original, Yakamoto, I can't remember how you pronounce his name, um, you know, the first blocks, several hundreds of blocks were all under his name and, you know, they've never been touched. So there's loads of crypto out there that's probably never going to be collected again. So the 21 million is actually more like 18 million purely because of uh, people losing their keys or their disks. Yeah, it's not going to go away, this problem. So bottom line, I still think it's a good idea, generally, based on this statement, it's not much better than passwords, but it's a little better for most people under some circumstances. I wouldn't be using it for my banking information or anything uh, deeply personal, stuff like that. Uh, but for Netflix, sure. If I can use my thumbprint to log into Netflix, I I'm happy to do that. Things like that. I guess I, I like the convenience of it, although I have not actually tried it yet. I haven't even done it. I'm a little nervous about it so i do i do hear your point about it yeah and i won't touch it i don't use um biometrics on any of my systems so i've got no interest in if 80 percent of the population start using it i'll give in and just say sod it i'll be a sheep and follow the crowd but yeah i'm not going to be a first adopter to this technology in any way all right well i'll see you there because i think this is going to take off <laughs> okay uh great Moving on to the next topic then, uh, trying to avoid the elephant in the room, Elon Musk, is always very difficult, but I suppose we better mention it this time. Elon has decided that there uh, needs to be a new CEO of Twitter, so obviously he can focus on uh, other things, because obviously he has multiple other businesses going on. I'm going to completely destroy her name here, Linda Yaccarino, if yes. I'm saying that correctly. That is uh, Fantastic. I've only seen a couple of clips of her and, you know, she's a bit of a, a bulldog, I believe, a bit like, you know, same type of mindset as Elon of trying to uh, force, um, you know, heavy handed approaches to get the business to get where it needs to be. Potentially, maybe that is exactly what Twitter needs. But 
recovering on from this, I started thinking more about what I should actually be sharing online. So when social media first came out with Facebook, with Twitter, I'll be looking back at my old history and, oh my goodness, I used to write a load of rubbish. I used to put so much stuff of my day and what I was doing there. It was ridiculous. I, th- I think on average, the first three years, I was posting one t- you know, once a day, or I think it was even twice a day for the first three years when I was on Twitter. I'm thinking that I've cut that down massively over the last five, six years. I hardly post at all. And normally it's just things like promotions or other things I'm doing, like podcasts, like events and stuff like that. And yes, essentially, I've seen a lot more quite intelligent attacks happening well now where people are actually utilizing the information from social media sites for targeted attacks. You know, understanding when someone's out of the country, you've heard a case with footballers, you know, where they know they're going to be somewhere else. Therefore, they try and break into the house because they know they're not going to be at home using location data in ways like that. Or, you know, people talking about their dogs and then and when they were born, where their birthdays were. And then, as you said, their password is their dog's birthday. So therefore, that's exactly what they try as a brute force attempt. So from your perspective, should people like you and me actually even be using social media to actually pass information across? All right, I'm going to avoid uh, going down the rabbit hole of talking about Linda Yaccarino, because I'm sure we're going to be talking about it in the future. So uh, we'll see how things go. Do you actually know who she is? Because I've never heard of her before. Yeah, she's a very well-known um, uh, ad executive, extremely successful, who has really deep reach and relationships into the advertiser world and has been very effective at bringing all kinds of interesting advertisers, brands, and just advertising clients in a lot of different novel ways. I think that she knows how to bring advertisers to a, uh, to a medium and has done that before, and we'll see what she can do uh, with Twitter. But let's stick to the topic because, um, you know, we could do one recording without me ranting about Elon Musk, and this is going to be the one. Unless you want to rant about Elon Musk, in which case we could take a half an hour and I'll get it out of the way. Let's try and stay on topic, Dave. Okay. Well, what really is the risk? I mean, um, I used to share all kinds of stuff as well, even like political things and what what I'm having for dinner. And, you know, I was really uh, opining a lot, which I enjoy, but it's out of control on social media. It's too much. But how big is this? risk of somebody robbing your home or doing some social engineering and actually committing a crime against you or violence or something like that, you know, scary things happening as a result of oversharing versus the um, very large risk of being canceled or being cyber bullied or just abused online, something like that. Is this a big problem with people being targeted with, with crime? Well, I'd definitely say the cyberbullying, the politics piece, I have, I don't believe to my knowledge I've ever posted anything political because things change so regularly where, you know, maybe you support over here, Labour and, and Conservatives are the two main parties with Lib Dems coming third. You know, maybe they're great, you know, right now, one of the parties I say, oh, they're fantastic, you should vote for them. Five years later, they completely destroyed their reputation. Now people are now bullying you saying, oh, you like that political party. I don't like you because of it. And, you know, the whole separation piece. So I always just keep away from the political side of things. When it comes to the security piece, if you are a high profile person, then I'd say this is a very big concern. If you've got a lot of wealth, 
you know, unfortunately I don't. So, you know, I haven't had this issue personally. Uh, but if you've got a lot of wealth, you would be targeted for extortion or information like that. I've heard, definitely heard a few stories recently where people have known that someone's partner has gone away by following their Instagram. They know that they've just left and gone to another country or even just gone to another uh, county. And uh, they then get telephone calls of, you know, someone crying and saying, okay, you're partner's been injured um you know i'm going to take to hospital because x amount of money or i've abducted her or something like that you know it's not a situation i've been in thankfully but when you hear these types of stories it's like should i just not even bother putting myself at that very small risk that it could happen i don't really care you know what people think of my breakfast or where i'm going today so you know people don't really care even my friendship groups are hardly on social media anymore in the same type of way as they were originally is there any point putting yourself at that type of um, risk personally? I guess for people that are targets because of their wealth, their notoriety, fame, whatever, then they have to exercise the same caution that they would anywhere else. So if you're uh, you know, Taylor Swift, you're not telling everybody what hotel you're staying at um, or when your flight is, things like that. And you should be careful on Twitter. And hopefully their, their management um, and handlers know that. Because, yeah, I can really see those things happening. But because it's so public and so easy, it's probably a lower bar. You don't have to be an unbelievably famous, wealthy person to be targeted. You just have to be wealthy enough to be worthwhile. So, yeah, I think it's a good point. But for each uh, instance of there being uh, some issue uh, like that, I think there's a thousand issues of people just oversharing and getting over-personal especially young people, and then facing embarrassment, um, being stalked, being bullied, conflict with people that they know. I think a lot of people just overshare in a social way. Uh, so maybe they're not targets of crime, but there's the cyberbullying and there's a lot of suicides that are related to social media. And it's, it's really a mess. I mean, social media is a very weird social environment can be very unhealthy. And then at the same time, there's this kind of value to oversharing. We see it all the time. For example, right now on LinkedIn, it's very, very popular to share your mental health struggles. And there's even like a format for it. And you're sort of coming out as how, how brave you are. You know, people in the comments say, oh, so courageous for you to talk about your depression and anxiety in this way and how you overcame it. But it's kind of disingenuous. It's sort of like people talking about uh, their startup failures and how much they learned from it. When in fact, they screwed it up and it didn't work out. They didn't learn anything. Uh, they're just trying to make it into some kind of marketing speak. So there's a premium on oversharing now. Everybody is talking about their mental health. So much so that it's become ridiculous. So now we're somewhere in the middle. Right? Is it good or bad? I think if you're potentially a victim of crime, you should probably uh, shut up about some details. I think that if you're an entrepreneur that wants to talk about your, you know, overcoming your challenges because of your depression and anxiety, you should probably shut up. There's enough of that now. You're not helping anybody. But especially on TikTok, there's this, uh, and I'm not a big TikTok lover, but it is fun. And there's this explosion of people you know, quote, oversharing in this very pride-oriented way. There's a, a trend of all these uh, women who have had uh, double mastectomies taking off their tops and dancing around. And it's like this kind of pride in their body things. There's uh, 
kids with Down syndromes singing songs and doing dances, things they probably wouldn't have done in the past. A lot of pride, a lot of trans people, um, a lot of neurodivergent people. So I think there's a place for it. I like the idea of people getting personal and sharing. It's a new space for things like that. But for somebody like me or you or somebody who's hugely wealthy and has a yacht and a lot to lose, I think you have to be very, very careful. So it's, boy, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, I mean, authenticity is incredibly important, I think, in any form of media outlet that you're posting in. And don't forget, especially this audience, this audience could have people that have only been in the industry five, ten years, very early in their uh, career still. And if they are posting things that are very acceptable, you know, and fine now to post about in 10 years, 15 years, that might not be the case anymore. And, you know, the idea is people in this sector, we're trying to grow, we're trying to improve, trying to get the better jobs. I plan to be a millionaire, Dave. Haven't got a plan. For, I'm not, haven't actually got a real plan for it yet, but that's what I want to get to. You know, I want to be a big deal, big time CTO. And therefore, if there is some embarrassing or even something that where the cultural society has changed, where it's no longer acceptable, that could really hinder my career in the future. So keeping quiet, not sharing it from a career progression standpoint is also probably quite important, unless if you are trying to boost your career with a whole digital presence and you do overshare and you're, and you're trying to be authentic like that as well, it, there's a massive risk there. All, you, all it takes is one mistake and one mishandled situation and you essentially lost that process of you trying to gain your career via that uh, medium. I see, especially younger people, very bold about sharing, even on uh, someone's LinkedIn profile, where it's just there for the business world to see people talking about uh, mental health, about politics, things like that. And on social media, people just going wild. I know people in their 20s that are posting things that I can't imagine they want to answer to these things or at least uh, have an employer or a colleague see them. It's not worth it. These are highly personal, very strong opinions about all kinds of, uh, you know, difficult issues. And there's just no fear at all. People are just completely going for it. I think that's the flavor of the day. And uh, I actually quite like it. The reason why I like it is because there isn't a place to go for this type of medium. There isn't this place to go to talk about mental health in a, in a way where it's easily accessible. LinkedIn, for example, is your work environment, but most of your colleagues don't know the challenges you're going through. So therefore you want to share and make it understood that other people are going through problems as well. So therefore you become more accepting of situations like that. But if there was a better place to go, I'd say, yeah, it shouldn't be on LinkedIn. It should be somewhere else. But because there isn't somewhere to go, LinkedIn, I'm actually okay with it. But I don't see that much. So maybe it's just the people that I follow. Maybe it's because we're British and you know we're a little bit more upper-lipped tight up ellipse than, than the US are. So therefore, maybe that's why I don't see it as much. But I do see um, several ones come through and ex-work colleagues talking about these things that, you know, I never knew that about them. And it is a bit of an eye-opener to at least be aware of the potential situations other people, you know, are experiencing on a daily basis. Yeah, certainly there, there's there's something valuable about that. But then I worry that um, somebody's sharing all this stuff and then they go for a job interview, uh, for a job for which they're qualified. And then somebody's looking at their social media, which I think happens all the time now. And they're thinking, wow, that's a lot of 
It's a lot of mental health stuff. That's a lot of this. That's a lot of that. It'll be perceived as baggage rather than a positive to hiring them. So therefore, it could actually hinder their careers. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that's good or bad. That could be very bad and inappropriate for someone to make that judgment call. But I think they would. So it, from a career perspective, I think it's probably a good idea to take it easy and be very mindful of what you're putting out there, especially on LinkedIn for everyone to see. I know people need an outlet and social media can be helpful. If I'm interviewing a candidate and I do see their socials and there's a lot of stuff on there, a lot of uh, you know charged up emotional stuff, it's hard not to notice it, especially when there's politics and there's like deep social issues with strong opinions and then all the mental health stuff. And I just think, uh, oh, I don't know what I think, but I notice it. Yeah. And as you say, certain people may go, okay, I can't, you know, I'm a small startup business. I can't handle any additional challenges or baggages that may come across. So therefore I'm going to skip on them. Maybe that's not the right company you want to work for. You could always give that example. People that bosses that consider people in that way are not the type of companies you want to work for, which is fair enough, but there's only so many companies going and there are still people, you know, not even in a not even trying to be negative or vengeful, but still thinking in that type of way. I mean, at one point I was thinking of actually trying to do the whole, you know, quick four or five minute video every day, just to tell the world what I'm thinking and all that stuff. I never did it, thankfully, but I was there thinking, should I do that? Should Will that bump up my profile? Will that give me some form of following that's going to help me with my career? And I felt that, no, I didn't think there was enough value to it when I was thinking about this several years ago. But, you know, doing things like this where I actually talking about a particular topic and not just going, I've been for a run, let's tell you what's on my mind. It could be interesting to some people, but I do think that, yeah, it it doesn't take much to completely ruin your future prospects by misjudging a situation that you may not know all the information about yet, and then suddenly you get hammered for it. People aren't that interesting, right? I mean, individual people are fascinating to be with them, and I love getting to know people. But if we say... uh, if everybody's sharing what they had for lunch and their thoughts on the, you know, what they watched on Netflix and uh, a few other, you know, musings, probably not that interesting. If we want to have mediocre content, now we have AI, which would be more than happy to provide as much as we want. So who's left? We have a fire hose of personal information. If people are forming groups and talking about issues that affect them, that's really useful for them, but it's not entertaining for me. We have AI. It's going to take over the space. We don't need just blathery content anymore. And I've made plenty of it. We don't need it anymore. So I think it's going to divide into people that are creating really legitimately interesting content and people that are creating really legitimately interesting content as influencers, right? So it's interesting because they're marketing something, spectacular life, and a you know a $5,000 handbag. That's one thing. It's engineered. And then there are actually brilliant people or people that are just comic geniuses or interesting or beautiful or whatever it is. And we can look at them. But I wonder if the days of everybody saying everything and this idea that we should all be completely open everywhere in every medium might be coming to an end. I think people are getting a little bored of it, I think. But I might be wrong about that. Yeah. I mean, I still watch so much rubbish on TikTok every time I open that app. But again, that's a different medium, isn't it? So I'm the one who strongly feels that TikTok should be banned. 
And I look forward to looking at TikTok every day. Uh, it's so much fun. It's fantastic. I love it. And um, it's the root of all evil and should be banned in the US. <laughs> it's like eating a Krispy Kreme burger. You know you shouldn't eat it, but it's just so delicious. You can't avoid it. Yeah. And the algorithm is exquisite. I mean, uh, you can't you can't get off the thing. It, it's amazing. I don't know how they do it. The way that they they feed you the content is just Right. It's better than any of the other social media networks. They hook you right in. The the algorithm is fantastic. I keep on getting a lot of Ted Lasso uh, clips at the moment for some reason. So obviously that must be uh, my sweet spot. Well, I'm going to say what everyone says. When you tell them what you get on, on TikTok, they always say, oh, really? I, I never get that. I've never once gotten Ted Lasso. I get this and this and this. I get these other things because... It's so good at showing you what you like. And it really isn't conflict-oriented, right? Like on YouTube, YouTube loves a good comment thread with some bickering, Facebook especially. Um, their algorithm is sort of designed to bring conflict. They want to show you things that anger you a little bit, get you charged up. TikTok is just put on the rose-colored glasses. You're going to see everything you want to see and nothing you don't want to see. And down the rabbit hole you go. It's amazing. But terrifying okay then ban tiktok <laughs> so let's move on then so um so talk about what got our attention this week um so what has got your attention this week dave what got attention this week is that in the last five or six days there was a whole bunch of headlines tongue-in-cheek headlines talking about the death of the metaverse and i really enjoyed them it's fantastic because there is a sick satisfaction to seeing uh, Mark Zuckerberg starting to kind of crack started to form in the meta play and watching others uh, sort of poke holes in it and all of that. I think the jury is still out and the term metaverse is very broad, but according to The Guardian, who released the almost like an obituary, which goes like this, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to remember the metaverse, which was quietly laid to rest a few weeks ago by its grieving adoptive parent, one Mark Zuckerberg. And, uh, you know, I love a little snarky writing. Insider wrote, the metaverse, the once buzzy technology that promised to allow users to hang out awkwardly in a disorienting video game-like world, has died after being abandoned by the business world. It was three years old. Also pretty good. And then Epic Games uh, CEO Tim Sweeney came out with the contrarian view, claiming that there are 600,000 active users of Fortnite, PUBG, and all the others, and that the metaverse isn't going anywhere. But then he got beat up, saying people saying that's not really metaverse. So I don't know if the metaverse is over, but I think that um, we once talked about how it's not really fun. I don't want to have a meeting with the headset on. Uh, AR and mixed reality is much better. And it's probably going to be used for training simulations, gaming. There'll be some interesting experiences built for it, but it's going to be much smaller than any of the other reality models. And I think the metaverse is not over, but the buzz around it is over. We're just going to go back to, um, it'll just be full VR. No one's going to be living there. So not really news, but I enjoyed the headlines. So that's it. So is metaverse dead? What do you think? I'm going to put up a news alert for the article title, Metaverse Rises Again. 
And I reckon two, three <laughs> years, that's how I'll get a ping for that. So I don't know. I don't think it's dead. I think it'll come back. The technology's not there yet. I reckon. I, I'm look. I want to live in the Matrix, Dave. I think that's just my personal goal in life. Maybe. No, you can't live in the Matrix because your head will become itchy because of the headset. That's the problem with the Matrix. Everybody wants to be in the Matrix, but it's just kind of hot in there. It is nice the hype has it's sort of hard. gone away and died down now. But obviously now the hype's around AI. So um, again, that I think AI is getting overhyped at the moment, but I think there's more use cases of valid um, technology behind there at the moment than obviously what the metaverse was getting hyped up about over the last couple of years. But I think it's coming back. I don't think it's dead. I think there's uh, a lot of use cases outside of what we see right now. Okay. Well, what have you got? What'd you bring in? What's on my side? So actually, okay, so interesting. I don't know if you um, heard the original podcast of The Lazarus Heist, but it's super interesting. It's a BBC podcast around um, the North Korea hacking groups trying to sell at a, uh, like trying to steal a billion dollars. And they walk you through the process in season one of exactly how they try and do it, how they try and launder the money, you know, how all these things work. They've just released season two now, which, again, is very orientated around North Korea's hacking groups. But this is, you know, they talk about ATM jackpotting the Winter Olympics. I'm only like three, four episodes in at the moment, but it's super interesting. It gives you really good view about how impressive and organize these hacking groups are of how they try and take money out and how they always target it just at the start of a bank holiday weekend because I know everyone's shot off on holiday. You know, the, the really strong, smart people are taking their time off and you've got the, you know, people in support that aren't at the same level and something bad happens and they don't know how to react to it so they get much more time to try and abuse the system. So it's a super interesting podcast. It's worth listening to. So I just thought I'd give it a shout out in this podcast itself. Fantastic. I'm excited about this because I I have nothing to add to this conversation. I've, I'd never heard of it, didn't know what it was until I saw it in your notes, but I'm excited to check it out. And we're, this is a uh, talking about actual things, right? This is real stuff. Yeah, this isn't fiction. This is actually based off all the evidence that was collected, um, interviews with people involved. So it is. it seems incredibly accurate. Obviously, I haven't had a chance to validate myself, but it has been done very well by the BBC, and they're normally pretty good at ensuring the accuracy of the data they provide. Yeah, BBC credibility. I can't wait. So I've got nothing interesting to say about it, except thanks for sharing that. I, uh, I'm in. I, I'm going to load it up on my podcast player today and i will start listening to it in the car right away that'll sort your commutes out for a week or two yes Wonderful. fantastic thank you i can't wait all right we should probably wrap it up there then dave so uh, thanks for joining me today always a pleasure and uh yeah thanks again for the audience for listening i hope you're enjoying these uh podcast series and uh yeah please sign up at techkitchen.io where we have a slack group and you know anyone can come in join and uh, talk about this as well if you're in the technology space and a leader so uh yeah enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you all soon thanks a lot thanks everybody bye